Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm excited to begin a new series this week. We're going to be looking at Paul's epistle to the Galatians. And I've actually titled this Galatians Unearthed. And the reason I've done that is really with this focus, with the understanding as we delve into this epistle, we are going to unearth it, looking at its historical context, looking at the original intent of what the Apostle Paul had for the Galatians, why he's writing them, what the problem is, not given to presuppositions of, of Christian, you know, traditional uh, ideas and, and concepts, not given to uh, really well-written uh, summaries and commentaries on that, simply going to the source, going to the heart of it, and listening, literally listening to what the Apostle Paul has to say and the context by which he said it. Uh, I'm going to tell you, you know, when it comes to Christianity, as, as, as we know it today, evangelical Christianity, you'll be hard-pressed to find another book in the Bible that carries as much weight, as much cloud, as much emphasis as the book of Galatians carries, especially when it pertains to matters of the law, right? So just think about this. I challenge you. Think about all the conversations you've had. Think about the conversations that you're going to have whether it's with your believing friends, believing family members, whether you're in Bible studies and you're, and you're talking amongst the people, whether you're talking to pastors, whether you're talking to professors of seminaries, I challenge you, when you talk about the law, make no mistake, I guarantee it, the book of Galatians is going to come into the conversation. Every time. It happens. It is going to happen. The mark that this book has made on Christianity, the impact that it has had, I got to tell you, I look at it in awe. I don't think it can be measured. That's how great of an impact it's made. In fact, I would argue, and I understand this is going to be a bold statement, I would argue that the book of Galatians is the most influential book in all of the history of Christianity. For shaping and forming doctrine. The most influential book that there is in all of the Bible. Let me make another bold statement. I would also say at the very same time, it is the most misunderstood book in all of Christianity. What does that tell you? On one hand, I have the most influential book for shaping and forming Christian doctrine. On the other hand, I have the most misunderstood book that tells you this is going to be a really interesting study. With that said, I want to open up today with some commentary from one of the very respected Bible scholars. He's no longer with us today, but I think he died in the 80s. But F.F. Bruce, a, a scholar scholar, if you will, and uh, an awesome apologist for defending the reliability of the New Testament. Well, he has some commentary in regard to Paul's epistle to the Galatians, and specifically its special placement, its special placement in the first known canon of Scripture, the first one known that's ever been recorded. Listen to this commentary. The traditional criterion in the canonical arrangement of the Pauline letters, as far back as can be traced, appears to have been in a descending order of length, a stichometric sequence, if you will. In other words, the larger books come first, the smaller ones come later. 
Well, go home and open your Bibles today and look at it. It's virtually, that's how it's laid out. The Pauline epistles, they're the biggest ones first. So you have Romans and 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the biggest ones first. And then we get into the smaller ones. This is traditional. This is normally how you place the books in order. But listen to this. He goes on. But Marcion, who about 140 AD was the first person, so as far as known, to compile a closed canon of Christian writings. In other words, what he's saying is Marcion is responsible for the first known Christian Bible, the closed canon of it. Now, having said that, most of you know the history of Marcion. He eventually, he was deemed a heretic by the early church. And so he was not really favorable. He had some Gnostic tendencies. He had some really interesting things that he stood on and vehemently preached. And it was the separation of law in gospel. He taught that the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament, is not the God of the New Testament. That God of the New Testament is a loving, graceful God. The God of the Old Testament is a hateful, vengeance God. Okay, and so here he has this closed canon of Christian writings deviated from this principle of arrangement by taking Galatians out of its psychometric sequence and giving it a pride of place at the head of his apostolicon. In other words, what he's saying is here, Marcion came on the scene, the traditional way of putting these books together and reading them, he totally changed it and he took Galatians out and put it to the head. This received the pride of placement and Marcion's Apostolicon, Marcion's Bible. Now he goes on to say, Tertullian, another early church father, our first witness for Marcion's order agrees with him to this extent. Now that's ironic. You got to understand the backdrop here. The fact that F.F. Bruce brings out the reality that Tertullian agrees with him. That's a big deal. You know why? Because he specifically dedicated a lot of work to, re to rebutting him to coming out against him, to rebuking him. So the fact that he's saying he's agreed, this is a big deal. So he agreed with Marcion to this extent that he too holds Galatians to be the primary epistle against Judaism. Continuing, Marcion's placing of the epistle has not prevailed, okay, because you look at your Bible today, Romans is the first Pauline epistle, right? But what's he say here? He says... But its primacy of importance among the writings of Paul has been widely, though not universally, acknowledged from that day to this. The primacy of importance. So the point here is, is from the very inception we find Galatians, it, it, it receives this special pride of place at the head of the table. Listen to what Martin Luther has to say. The epistle... To the Galatians is my epistle. I've betrothed it myself to it. It is my wife. Now think about how dramatic that statement really is. There's no deeper affection that he could have possibly expressed than likening the epistle of the Galatians to his own wife. The ultimate example of intimacy. The ultimate example of respect. And, and what do we know about marriage? We know, and we've talked about this before, the wife has special access into the husband's heart that no one else has. She has a special access to get his ear. Make no mistake, this is exactly what Luther is conveying. He is conveying Galatians has a special place in my heart. It has special access to my heart. Oh, and yeah, 
The most influential person in any husband's life is the wife. This is what he is conveying. And any doubts to that, he goes on to say this later on in his life. If they took my advice, they would print only the books containing doctrine like Galatians. Think about that statement. Think about the gravity of that statement and what Luther is really conveying, especially when you know the history of Luther and what he's talking about. When he's talking about faith and his understanding of faith, his understanding of liberty and what that really means. This is a powerful statement. And so when we look at history, and look at the way this book has been perceived, it's not hyperbole to say that this epistle has been given the most preeminent seat in all of Christianity. Pure and simple. Now the first thing I want to do before we break into the book itself, I think it's a good idea to share with you a warning given to us by the Apostle Peter concerning, specifically concerning the letters of Paul. Kind of, it, it, you kind of look at this warning, it, it's a preamble. And it's meant, it's included in the New Testament because it's meant to be a preamble to every one of Paul's epistles. And so pay close attention. This is what he says. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. The first thing I want to mention is Peter... A pillar of the faith, right? He calls him our beloved brother. Our beloved brother. See, Peter is giving the apostle Paul, and we'll see this even further in the book of Galatians itself, he's giving him the right hand of fellowship. He is his brother. He is commending him. He supports Paul. Now, this is critical, especially for today, when you have anti-Pauline people come on the scene uh, simply uh, reacting to people interpreting Paul's works as antinomian, anti-law. So they come on the scene and they really are not fans of Paul when they come to this discovery. Hey, Torah is relevant. Torah hasn't been done away with, but then they still struggle with the epistles of Paul. And so they begin to write him off and Paul really takes a beating in that way. I want to be very, very clear on something. First of all, Paul's epistles can stand on their own. But know this, he has external support. It's not just him going around saying, I was called, I was anointed to preach the gospel. He has other pillars of the faith declaring him to be an authentic apostle. This is a significant problem for those who are anti-Pauline. It doesn't work because Paul has the support of the highest of the high of men of the day. Okay, First thing to know, so they're tight. Peter and Paul, they're in total support of one another. But then the second thing is, look at it, he says, according to the wisdom given to him. He identifies that Paul has wisdom. It's a profound, it must have been extremely profound for him to mention it. Because here's a guy who I know that people walked in his shadow and were healed. And this guy's coming out and identifying, the one thing he identifies about Paul is his wisdom. Profound, profound wisdom. Lastly, the very last uh, statement has written to you. The very last thing has written to you. Now, 2 Peter is written to Gentiles. Peter is specifically talking to Gentiles. He's acknowledging, I know the Apostle Paul, who has great wisdom, who is my brother, he has written to you. Okay? So with this backdrop, he goes on and says this. 
as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Did you get that? They are hard to understand. He is warning these Gentiles. Paul's got a profound amount of wisdom, but when he says specific things in his epistles, this is specifically what he's referring to. He's like, listen, some of these things are hard to understand. And this is a man anointed with the Ruach HaKodesh. Unbelievable miracles done through this man. And he himself, who has read these, identifies. Some of these things are hard to understand. Now he gets, goes on and he says this. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. I want to point something out. Untaught in what? Economics? Physics, mathematics, chemistry, Torah, the word of the Lord, the Torah and the prophets. Those men who are ignorant of the Torah and the prophets, they are the ones in danger of twisting his words. And guess what? They do the same with the Torah and the prophets. They're unstable. And he's warning them. Don't do this. Continuing on verse 17. And you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware. Beware. Lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Beware. This is the preamble. So every time we enter into an epistle of Paul, remember this warning. Be careful. You're entering into dangerous territory, which many... Who are untaught and unstable. They have twisted his words to their own destruction. If you think this is not a big deal. You say potato, potato. You interpret Paul that epistle one way. Well, I interpret it another way. I'm afraid not. It doesn't work. Because what Peter said. He said life and death is at stake. Put that into context for a second. That yes, it does matter how you are interpreting his letters. Because it could mean your life. This is the warning of Peter. So as we enter into this epistle, we are going to be taking heed to this warning. Amen. Now, just to kind of give you a heads up what today is really going to be about. It's, we're just going to be setting the stage, really kind of getting the landscape of the epistle of Galatians, the backdrop, if you will, uh, to it. And we're going we're gonna to ask and answer five questions. Who, what, when, where, and why? The basics. We're going to get them out of the way. The first one is, who wrote this epistle? Well, let's check this out. In Galatians 1, verse 1, we read, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Yeshua Mashiach and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So the first thing we read, Paul the apostle. That's pretty easy. We know Paul wrote it because he tells us right in the beginning. However, it's not always that simple, unfortunately. This is what you call internal evidence. So within the epistle itself, we have evidence. There's Paul's name. The problem comes in is to when you understand what was going on in the early first century and into the second century, there were imposters, forgers who were playing on Paul's good name. In fact, I mean, there are actual epistles, the epistle to the Laodiceans, the epistle to the Alexandrians. These were Gnostics that crafted the letters and they used Paul's name. And so it's kind of important to start breaking this all down to look at the authenticity. We need to know, I mean, Peter has declared Paul is the real deal. He's legitimate, 
but we need to legitimize to make sure that he actually wrote this epistle. And so the first thing is, okay, well, we have his name. Well, what else do we know? Look at the writing style. And this, for scholars, is absolutely monumental. The writing style tells so much. It is like DNA. It's like leaving DNA at a scene or a fingerprint. Because everyone has this unique writing style. People that email me, uh, I know who they, I wouldn't even have to know their names because I get so many emails from different people. I know how they write. I know how they speak in communication. The same thing as most of us have spouses. We understand how they communicate, so on and so forth. Make no mistake, as many as hours as I have put into studying Paul, you know him. You know him. You know his writing style. Galatians is absolutely lines up perfectly with Paul, other epistles that are known to be written by Paul perfectly. And so the writing style is very, very important. There's no question that this is definitely the Apostle Paul. Thirdly, there are things mentioned in this epistle that if you were going to forge, like the Gnostics were doing early on, you would not mention specific events that happened where you had interaction with other people, such as we find in Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Interaction, mind you, with men of the likes of Peter. And coming out and actually legitimately saying, as we're going to see later in the coming weeks, that uh, Paul actually declares he rebuked Peter. Now, let me tell you something. If you're forging a document, you are not going to make a statement like that. That's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And so internally, we have all this evidence that there is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is definitely the Apostle Paul. But externally, we have evidence. The earliest church fathers, they all declared him. There was no debate. There wasn't even a question as to the authenticity of this epistle. Absolutely none. In fact, let me take it a step further and share with you some commentary from J.B. Lightfoot. This is what he says. The epistle to Galatians is found in all the known canons of Scripture proceeding from the Catholic Church in the second century. It is contained in the Syriac and Old Latin versions. Completed, it would appear, sometime before the close of the century. It is distinctly recognized also in the canon of the Moratorium fragment, probably not later than 170 AD. Now, this is a huge statement. And it would be cast beyond any shadow of the doubt. This is absolutely authentic. And then to later find, and the Moratorium fragment wasn't found that long ago, a couple centuries the Moratorium Fragment was, is this interesting document. I have a copy of it. The Moratorium Fragment is literally this list of books that they considered inspired, or what we would call Scripture. And the list of books in this. And Galatians is in that list. And even within this, it gets, I don't want to get too deep into it, but there's some interesting things that are said in this Moratorium Fragment that appear to be in response to Marcion's canon of the Bible, which obviously came before being that it was the first canon of uh, closed canon of Scripture. So, beyond dispute, Paul is the authentic author of Galatians. We move on to the next questions. To whom and where was it written? Well, that one's kind of easy. It's, well, it's written to the Galatians in Galatia. Okay, this is not rocket science. Now, while that may sound overly simple, there is some debate here. There is a little bit of debate because there's a few people that say, well, we think Paul is actually addressing um, 
a specific ethnicity of people in regard to Galatians. Yet there's a, there's the, the, the preponderance of the evidence rests somewhere else. It rests that this is actually a geographical location where people would reside in, such as we look at this. Here's a map. And here you can see this highlighted portion here is Galatia. But notice, and this is going to become important as we continue, there are several cities with, that you should recognize in the book of Acts that are in Galatia. You got Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. And so this is, when we're thinking about Galatians, this is what you need to be thinking about, this geographical location with these cities uh, within. Moving on to our next question. When was this epistle written? Well, it's estimated, it was, it's a very close estimate, 49 to 50 AD. But some will even stretch it out to 57. But regardless, I mean, you want to talk about a small time frame, narrowing it down. I mean, this is pretty good. This is really good. You think about the time frame when this was written. What do you think of? We have two markers that are huge in this, in this era. 30 AD, Yeshua was crucified, resurrected. 30 AD. 70 AD, what happened? The destruction of the temple. What comes smack dab in the middle of this? this Paul pens this epistle to the Galatians. Right in the middle of this. Now, that, what does that tell you? Well, first of all, it tells me if we know Yeshua died and rose from, from the grave at 30 AD. And here, we're not even 20 years later. And the gospel has already gone out. To the nations in full force. Full force. Think about how the gospel was spreading like wildfire. It was spreading like wildfire. Other things are going on. In 49 AD, Claudius was kicking the Jews out of Rome. He was expelling them out of Rome. Absolutely very significant to this time period. There's a lot of things going down right now. Persecution is rising up. All right, continuing on to our next one. Why? Why did Paul write this epistle? Well, we actually, we're going to jump ahead in Galatians, and we're just going to go to verse 6 and answer this. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Mashiach to a different gospel. Why is Paul writing to the Galatians? Because they're turning to another teaching. They're turning to a gospel, but look at this. Which is not another. What does he mean by it's not another? He means this. They're still coming and preaching Yeshua, Jesus, as the Messiah. You need to follow him. He is the Christ. So, but the expression of how you do that was being tweaked. Just a little bit. The expression of how you walk that faith out was being tweaked just a little bit. Which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Mashiach. So, obviously, the, the reason Paul writes this epistle is he, he's looking to pull these Galatians, these people that he has sown into, he wants to pull them out of the fire of deception. He wants to retor, uh, restore some uh, spiritual sanity, if you will. So, we've looked at who, when, where, why. Now we come to the what. What is this epistle all about? I mean, what perverse teaching have they accepted? 
What truth has been compromised in Galatia? Before I answer that, I want to show you how others have answered this question in a traditional light. Let's take a look at this. And this is from the Marcionite Prologue. And let me just set this up for you. The Marcionite Prologues were, were, were these little commentaries before the actual epistle appeared. Okay? And I, I want to be clear. The church unanimously, the traditional church, the very church that rebukes Marcion, all agree with his prologues. And this even today, scholars will mention this in their works. They were in complete harmony with the prologues. No issues. So as we go through this, keep, keep that in mind. The Galatians are Greeks. They had first received the word of truth from the apostle. But after his departure, they were tempted by false prophets to turn to the law in circumcision. The apostle calls them back to the true faith, writing to them from Ephesus. Now, that kind of gives you this little ending here, writing to them from Ephesus. This is one of the only places that we have any historicity in regard to where was Paul when he wrote Galatians. And we get this from the Marcionite prologue that, well, he, he was in Ephesus. So there's nothing to really discount that. Uh, there's not a whole lot to further support that. There's no reason to not believe it, though. Um, having said that, what is the analysis? They're turning from the Torah. They turn back to the Torah and circumcision. Both are specifically mentioned. This is critical as we continue. Let me show you another one. I want to take you to the 4th century. And we're going to look at this early church father, John Chrysostom, this archbishop of Constantinople. This is what he has to say. Some of the Jews who believed being held down by prepossessions of Judaism, meaning all those things they acquired in Judaism, and at the same time intoxicated by vainglory and desirous of obtaining for themselves the dignity of teachers, came to the Galatians and taught them, what did they teach them? That the observance of circumcision, Sabbaths, and new moons was necessary, and that Paul, in abolishing these things, was not to be born. He says the very same thing, in essence, as the Marcionite prologue says. It's all about they're going back to the observance of the law, teaching them that it's necessary to observe the law. I love this last part, though, and that Paul, in abolishing these things. You pay attention to the little details. You know where people are coming from, how they're processing information. It doesn't say Yeshua Jesus came and abolished these things. He actually mentions Paul. That's, that's very interesting. We might circle back on that later. With that said, I want to take you to uh, the earliest Latin commentator of Galatians, known as Gaius Victorinus. This is what he has to say in regard to this letter. The sum of the letter is as follows. The Galatians are going astray because they are adding Judaism to the gospel of faith in Mashiach. Okay, observing in a material sense, oh, the Sabbath and circumcision, together with the other works which they received in accordance with the law. Moving on, disturbed by these tendencies, Paul writes this letter, wishing to put them right and call them back from Judaism in order that they may preserve faith in Mashiach alone and receive from Mashiach the hope of salvation and of his promises, because no one is saved by the works of the law. So in order to show that what they are adding is wrong, he wishes to confirm uh, the truth of his gospel. 
And so this is the, con- this is the commentary from Gaius Victorinus, and this is, this is what he's seen again. He saw the same thing as John Chrysostom saw. He saw the same thing that the Marcionites saw. The exact same thing. They're all returning back to the Torah. Fast forwarding. We go to Martin Luther. And uh, he begins the preface to this epistle in the following manner. The Galatians had been brought to St. Paul to write Christian belief from the law to the gospel. But after his departure, there came the false prophets who were disciples of the true apostles and turned the Galatians back again to believe that they must attain blessedness through the work of the law and that they were sinning if they did not hold the work of the law. As according to Acts 15, certain highly placed people in Jerusalem insisted. And so... You go through all of this commentary, it just gives you a little more appreciation, a little more insight in regard to the general consensus, this historical analysis. It's all the same through the different generations. The problem is in Galatia, the returning back to Torah. All right? Let me ask the million dollar question Is that the problem? I mean, you have to ask that question. You know, the Torah is very careful. Uh, to share wisdom with us that we don't follow the crowd simply because they're the majority, simply because they have a conviction on what they believe. You don't do that. So at the very least, you have to ask, okay, with all these commentaries in Christianity throughout the different generations, is that a correct analysis? Is this, is this safe to say that they're right on the money, or is there something off here? Well, I'm going to tell you this is exactly what we are going to endeavor to find out because identifying, and listen to me carefully, identifying the problem in Galatia, you identify this problem and I promise you it will unlock unbelievable doors for you in Scripture. And something magical will happen. And I can say this because I've taught on Galatians before and how many people came back to me and said, you know, there were all these different passages that were all inconsistent with one another. They appeared that they were not cohesive. And there was all these looming questions. And then through the study in Galatians, they said, everything comes in perfect harmony. Their eyes have totally seen it. And the scripture came alive. And I can't tell you how many testimonies I've had on that. And so we're going to go through this and we are going to challenge church history traditional thinking in regard to the book of Galatians. But we're going to do it scripturally, not with presuppositions, not with opinions. Now, to really kick things off here, the first thing I want to do is I want to point out that the name given to this book, we just commonly call it, we call it Galatians. That's not a very good name, in my opinion. It has a much better name that would dramatically impact your understanding and your perspective of this letter is just changing the name. And what would that be? Second Galatians. I say that because the letter that we have in our New Testament with the headline Galatians, it is not the first letter to the Galatians. And this doesn't come out of some crazy New Testament pseudepigrapha. This isn't some crazy kookball Gnostic work that I'm claiming this, this, this is legitimate. The letter I'm talking about is actually in the New Testament. There's another letter written earlier before Galatians. 
written at an earlier time. It's found in the book of Acts. And so what I want to do is this. I want to take you to the book of Acts. And I really just want to give you a really powerful perspective, a, a history behind the history look, if you will. And uh, I, I actually am going to begin in Acts chapter 13. And right off the bat in chapter 13, we have, well, believers are in Antioch. And you need to understand something about Antioch of Syria. Antioch of Syria was a stronghold, a force to be reckoned with in the faith. It was kind of, I always call it the sub-hub of Jerusalem. And I say this because there were prophets, there were teachers, there were apostles actually dwelling in Antioch of Syria. This was a powerful place. This was a powerful hub. No question, major influence in this city. Okay? Well, Paul and Barnabas are in this city. They're in Antioch of Syria. And the Holy Spirit comes down and says, separate to me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have for them. Okay, fair enough. So that happens, and as we come to verse 4, we read the following. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And so here you have, all the way over here, Antioch of Syria. And you follow the red, you just come up. They went through Cyprus. Ultimately, what we're going to find is they're going to come to Pisidian Antioch. They're going to go to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and then they're going to make their their way back. And so that just kind of gives you uh, a little imagery to just kind of follow what's going on here. Now, I want to jump to chapter 14, because we're going to pick it up here. And this is what we read. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, meaning Derby, okay, this is the final stop, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So that's where this is the end of their journey. Now they want to go back to Lystra, Antioch, and Iconium. And so why would they do that? Well, we find out exactly why. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Moving to verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In other words, so they, we know that they're going back. What are they doing? They were establishing churches. They're going through Galatia. These are all cities in Galatia. And they're establishing churches. This is critical. This is the spread of the gospel. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Now moving on to verse 24. And after that, they had passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia. Verse 26, from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Okay? So now they've come back home to home base, this sub-hub away from Jerusalem and Antioch, where the prophets and the teachers are located. All right? And it specifically uh, says where they have been commanded. And then we move to verse 27. Listen to what it says. And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith uh, to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is critically important. 
that you see the testimony that they gave in this powerful hub of believers. They mentioned to them the door of faith had been opened to the Gentiles. I want to be very clear on something. This is not what their Jewish brethren were were expecting to hear. This was not what they were expecting to hear. They were expecting to hear how many synagogues they turned upside down and all these wonderful things which they did, which, I mean, I I skipped over a lot of portions, but if you read Acts 14, when, when Paul and Bartimaeus went to Antioch, the Gentiles caught wind of it, and the text actually says they begged them that they would preach this word to them on the next Sabbath. The Gentiles were begging for this word. They were hungry. And we're actually told in the very same passage that on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together. The whole city. This is the impact of the gospel. This was the impact of this anointing that Paul and Barnabas went in. This powerful anointing. And it blew a door open that no Jew in his right mind at that time would have ever expected. Gentiles coming into the faith. So you need to understand a Jew in the first century... This wasn't even a concept. Not at all. This wasn't on the radar. In fact, the Torah says you're to separate from the pagans. Get away from the pagans. Totally separate. This is the frame of their mind in it. I can understand why they're in that frame of mind. So think about this transition. In the first century, we're coming. You want to talk about Yeshua flipping the world upside down to his own people in this transition? Where you transition from the baptism of John the Baptist to a baptism of fire through the resurrection? That's a serious transition. When you move from a sacrificial system for sin into into a system of atonement that was done once and for all, where you move from a priesthood order of of the Levites, the sons of Aaron, the Kohanim, to the order of Monkey Tzedek, Are you guys feeling the weight of this transition of total craziness happening? I mean, for them, it's incredible. The world was literally for the Jew flipped upside down. And now you're telling me Gentiles are starting to pour in to our nation, the very ones we've been pushing off and staying away from our entire lives. I mean, this is the weight of what's going on. Incredible time. And so he shares with them a door of faith had been opened to the Gentiles. With that, we move into Acts 15. Verse 1, then certain men came down. Now keep in mind, these are believers in Yeshua. They've called upon his name to be saved. They came down from Judea, they're Jews, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You want to know what the problem is, Galatia? Welcome to the problem. From the very beginning of the book of Galatians, from the very first verse to the very last verse, this book is all about circumcision. I'm going to tell you that if you understand that, that is going to impact your time in Galatians. It is going to impact it profoundly. It's going to impact your time and in the rest of his epistles, as we are going to get into uh, even within this study itself and showing Paul is completely consistent with every epistle that he says. And all the words that he speaks are in perfect harmony. And guess what? They're in harmony with the Torah and the prophets. That's powerful to think of that. So you need to understand the number one issue in the first century, the number one issue, the most controversial issue was the fact that Gentiles were coming in and whether or not they had to be circumcised. 
When you see this, as I mentioned before, you see this for what it is, it's going to unlock all these amazing doors of understanding. Well, how do Paul and Barnabas handle this situation uh, with these men that they come down? They're brethren. They're own brothers. How are they handling their brethren? Well, verse 2, we read, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. So these men, these Jewish believers, they come down from Judea and they say, no, no, no. These Gentiles come in and they can't be saved. They must be circumcised. At that moment, Paul and Barnabas went toe to toe with them and they wouldn't back down. It got so heated. Look at, I mean, the, the, the way it describes this. No small dissension and dispute with them. You imagine how, how hot that, that debate was going back and forth. And because these Jews that came down from Judea, they wouldn't budge. Paul and Barnabas wouldn't budge. Well, then they, they go on. They say, well, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And so the contention became so hot and the issue was so critical, there was only one answer. Take it to Yerushalayim. Take it to the highest court in the world. In, in their eyes, in Israel's eyes, this is the highest court of the land. Whatever this court decides, it was the Supreme Court, whatever the Supreme Court decides, that's going to be it. That's the final answer. And we can put this to rest. What's interesting to me, and I've always found this fascinating, is what Paul and Barnabas and even these men from Judea, what they agreed to do is the instruction of Torah. See, they knew what had to be done because they were listening to the Torah. Let me show you. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 8, If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, or matters of controversy within your gates... Then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Look at that. What was this? This was a matter of controversy. Where we're supposed to go? To the place that the Lord chooses. What is that place? Yerushalayim. They're following Torah. Listen to this. It goes on. And you shall come to the priest, the Kohanim, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them... And they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. It's real simple. Whatever the priest, whatever the judges there in Yerushalayim state, it's over. Whatever they decide is gospel truth. You must accept it. It's not an option. In fact, if, if, if you look at Deuteronomy 17, you continue on later. A person who rejects that is actually to be killed. That's how powerful of a court this is. This is the Supreme Court in Israel. Now, something very, very important to note here during Paul's day. Understand, this Sanhedrin, which is what's being described here, this Sanhedrin, or the, the, the Sunedrion in Greek, it was fully functioning in Paul's day. It was fully operational. I want you to just go through the, the New Testament. Yeshua was brought before the Sunedrion. He was brought before the Sanhedrin. Peter and John in Acts 4 and even in Acts 5, they were brought before the Sunedrion. They had to face them. Paul himself was brought before the Sanhedrin. This was a fully functioning thing in Paul's day. So when this dispute arises in Antioch, 
The Sanhedrin, it's operating. The priests are there. It's all good. Why do I bring this up? Where am I going with this? Let me ask you the question. Where did Paul and Barnabas go when they went up to Yerushalayim? Look at this. Let's go back. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem. Oh, to the apostles and elders about the question. That's fascinating. Because see, this was to be brought to the priest. This was to be brought to the Pharisees. They didn't bring this to them. They brought them to the apostles. What does that tell you? As we're looking at this, what does that tell you? It tells you that the Lord established a new court in Jerusalem. He established a new Sanhedrin. Again, you want to talk about crazy transition periods? I mean, this was intact. According to Torah, everything's operating perfectly. And here, Yeshua comes on the scene. He establishes his own Sanhedrin to bring the highest matters to. And this was a matter of the highest most critical uh, time. Uh, this Gentiles coming into the faith. You couldn't get more controversial than this. And this goes to the apostles. That is really something. Well, what, you remember that conversation? What did Yeshua, he's talking to Peter and he says, Man, who do men say that I am? And he says, well, some say Elijah, some say uh, the, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, some say John the Baptist. He's like, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you're the Mashiach, the son of God. Blessed are you, Shimon Bar-Yona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. He goes on in that conversation to say this. Listen to what he says to Peter. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do you understand when Torah, when you're looking at Deuteronomy 17, and you're reading that whatever this Sanhedrin, whatever this council, which is established by God in Yerushalayim, whatever they declare, that's it. To the extent that if you don't receive it, you're killed. You reject it, you're going to die. You know what that's called? It's called whatever was established here will be established in heaven. Judgment. Think about that. And here, what... Yeshua is telling Peter, I'm giving you the keys, and with the rest of the apostles, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. In other words, whatever judgment you render, it will be confirmed in heaven. You need to feel the weight of that, because as we continue into next week, you need to understand that this council, this Jerusalem council that we're going to read about, and what they declared... It was not just established here on earth. It was bound in heaven with that authority. That is the secret to understanding Paul's anger and his frustration with what is going on in Galatia. And the further we get into this, the more this is going to make sense to you. I mean, we didn't cover a whole lot today, just a little bit. But the more we get into this, the heavier it's going to get. And, and dealing with all those questions and uh, statements that Paul makes and all these questions regarding uh, the Torah itself. In the heels of that, I want to take you to Matthew 19, just so you can feel the weight of what we're going to get into next week. Then Peter answered and said to Yeshua, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? 
So Yeshua said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You think about these apostles who are actively in Jerusalem, who are at this Jerusalem council we're going to read about next week, and the decision that they render and the implications of that, and their authority and their power. Remember this. These very apostles that are judging men, these apostles in the age to come are going to sit on 12 thrones judging all the righteous men that we've read about in this book. That is profound. That's humbling. See, that makes you go into this with humbleness. As when we're going to go and read, what are they going to state? You feel the weight and gravity of it. Now, the apostles knew the gravity of it, but there are others who are not respecting that. And we're just going to get into that.